Uh, my voice, you may have noticed, is other than ideal this morning. I uh, picked up a cold or something starting on Tuesday, lost my voice completely on Friday, and I'm now recovering. Uh, I gave the cold to Angela, so her comment this morning was, it's all your fault. So when you do not see Amber, Angela today, remember, it's all my fault. <clears throat> so this week, this is one of our review lessons. Every 10 lessons, we review the material from the previous nine lessons. And this series of lessons has been around events that happened during the second year of Christ's ministry. Please pray for me. I'm hoping my voice will last until the end. And if it doesn't, that's just another reason to move closer. We have two memory verses today. I'm going to listen while you guys repeat them. Four. Thank you, brother. Thank you, everyone, but he was trying to anchor that. I appreciate the effort. So that was the uh, memory verse for the first four lessons, or first five, I think. And here's the more recent one. Therefore... Amen. So last, the previous year, the first year of Jesus' public ministry, he started with preparation, fasting in the desert and testing by Satan after his baptism. And he called his first disciples and he cleansed the temple of the improper functions that were being performed there. And were shown in that first year two private teaching opportunities the first with a member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus, and the second with a Samaritan woman at the well. And I don't think it's coincidence that John arranges these, because these are two polar opposites, showing that the gospel is for everyone. But both of them misunderstood the message initially. They're focusing on the earthly, they're focusing on the fleshly, and they could not think about the second level. Now, Nicodemus, we don't know how that encounter ended for sure. The woman at the well became the catalyst for her entire town hearing the message. And then we saw his rejection at Nazareth because the people could not accept that this man they knew was the Messiah. And then he began a ministry of healing with this message. Now the message was not fully developed yet in the first year. We start seeing that in the second year. Now, realize that when Jesus came to the earth, he's fighting against an, an expectation. The Jews knew their Messiah was coming. He'd been prophesied. And they knew the timing was about right. Anyone who was paying attention to the prophecies could say, should be a Messiah coming along any minute now. 
But they looked at the prophecies and they cherry-picked them. They picked the ones they liked. And they ignored the ones that were inconvenient. And they focused on a coming king who would revive their nation. Because frankly, this was about national and ethnic pride. They were tired of no longer being an independent uh, kingdom. They lived under domination by foreign powers since the Babylonian uh, exile. And they had one brief period of independence under the Hasmodeans. But much like today, where Israel is an independent state that hasn't turned to God, they were in the same state then. The Hasmodeans weren't particularly worshiping God. They thought they were, but they weren't. But that gave them a taste of independence. And when the Romans came in, they were doubly uh, resentful that they would be put back into servitude. So they're looking for a Messiah who will be a political Messiah, who will be a cultural Messiah. They're not really looking for a religious Messiah. They conveniently ignored references to a suffering servant and a teacher who would turn their hearts to God. They knew the Messiah they wanted and would only see Christ through that lens. So Christ opens year two with a great sermon. First, we see him select his 12 core apostle, excuse me, disciples who would grow into his apostles. Now, while he prayed all the night before, he wasn't asking guidance for who to select. Those names were known to God before Genesis. Jesus was praying for them by name for what they were going to be going through over the next year and, 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 and further. By selecting them at the start of year two, they could be given intensive training to prepare them for year three. And as I read these lessons, as I read the Bible, I see that year two really revolves around these 12 men and their training as much as anything else that Jesus was doing. Now, the great sermon, of course, was the Sermon on the Mount. And there were three key lessons that we homed in on in our lessons. First of all, he's going to clarify the focus of the law. The Pharisees have built a religion around earthly protect, uh, perfection. We're going to get salvation by works because God gave us the law. And as long as we live up to the law, we're good enough for God. Sounds pretty smug, doesn't it? As I said, this standard started with the law. Then they added clarifications and rules, which accounted to significantly more material than the, the law is given by God. And they said, as long as you meet this standard, you are good enough for God. You could call yourself righteous and worthy of God. And this spirit goes on today in Orthodox Judaism. And a lot of that spirit is sitting around in Mainstream Christianity. Christ says, no. You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And anyone who was paying attention to the lesson at that point went, wait, what? 
They're the gold standard. I got to do better than the gold standard. That's not, how can I do that? But the more was not a quantitative difference. It was not something you measure in a measuring cup, how good you are. It was a qualitative difference, a different approach. Christ says you have to look at what the Pharisees are doing and go at right angles to that. It's different. He also says the bar is so much higher than ever. It's not just how you act, but it's how you think. And this makes righteousness in God's eyes impossible. Because while I may be able to control how I act, the evil is just continuous in here. And then he gives specific examples of murder and adultery. Because anyone who reads the Ten Commandments with the objective to avoid breaking them, these are the two easy ones. Brother, have you ever committed murder? There we go. Yeah, it's a pretty easy one. Most of us are safe from murder externally. Most of us are perfectly safe from adultery externally. But Jesus says if you're mad at your brother, you just committed murder in your heart. And if you look on a woman to lust after her, you just committed adultery in your heart. And suddenly the two easiest commandments to keep become two of the most impossible to keep. And the bar, which seemed like it might be in reach, goes up to 20,000 feet. There's no way. And without God, we are hopeless and helpless. Christ then addresses religion for show. And this was a core idea in self-righteous Judaism. How good you looked. And again, it's a core idea in many Christian circles today. But Christ said, if you're going to do something for God, you better do it privately. Because if you do it publicly, you're getting credit in the eyes of men. And God says, well, I hope you enjoyed that. He says you should be giving to God anonymously. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have to account for where the giving is coming in our church, but for tax purposes, it's kind of necessary. So there's some people who know what you give. <clears throat> I'm glad that I don't have to know. And if you're going to pray, do it in secret. Because neither of these activities should be for show. You're worshiping God, but that's between you and God. And Christ then gives a model prayer. And the model prayer is beautiful because it focuses on God, on His glory and His will. And there's no gimme anywhere in it. And then He finishes this section by refocusing fasting because fasting was used by the Jews as a show. If you didn't eat, you made sure you looked mournful and your features were drawn and you looked pathetic so people could know that you were dedicating your life to God. And Jesus says, you want to fast. Fasting is great. Fasting focuses your mind on the spiritual instead of the physical. But don't let anybody know. Act cheerful. You should be happy that you're fasting to God. Keep it private.
That was the first spoke of this message. Demolishing the foundations that the Pharisees and all of Jewish religion is standing on. Next, Jesus talks about God's provision for us. And the simple truth is he loves us and he will give us everything we need. But if we go through our life worrying about these basics that God is going to provide, we show a lack of trust and we cannot give glory to God because we're taking his glory away by worrying. And we also talked that week about many of the current misunderstandings of this principle, including ideas that Christians should avoid getting rich. We're not going to go into those misunderstandings today. I'm just listing them. That Christians should be lazy. That Christians should expect divine Cadillacs with the color of your choice. Or that Christians should only live for today. And all of these are misinterpretations of this principle. That God will provide your needs. Careful how you interpret that word need. And then after discussing true religion, proper worship and trust in God... Christ addresses righteous judgment and the example of the moat versus the beam. The moat is a speck of dust, smaller than a grain of sand, the tiniest particle of rock you can imagine. If you've ever worked with very fine abrasives grinding rock and you get that cloud of rock dust, which breathing is a bad idea, that very fine powder, that's a moat, one of those pieces. And then a beam, remember, Housing in Galilee did not use wooden framing, nor did they use steel. So what they had was rock. And they would cut out of the bedrock something like a two by eight, 15 foot long, out of stone. That's a beam. And Christ says, how can you help your brother get a moat out of his eye when you've got a beam in yours? And this example of don't be quick to judge. But on the other hand, Christ does not throw out the idea of judgment. What he says is first take the beam out of your eye so that you can help your brother. And again, it's not against judgment, but it's judgment God's way. Jesus said if you're going to judge, first of all, you better be using what I would call a righteous external standard. If I'm judging based on my standards, I got a problem. Because my standards reflect my preconceptions, my prejudices, my baggage, my issues. That's a bad idea. That's setting myself up as a judge. But God has given us an external standard. And that's in the, thank you, very, very good, one, uh, one of the four, three basic Sunday school answers, God, Jesus, and the Bible. Well done. That external standard, if I'm going to be judging, I should be looking at that standard and saying, okay, that's right and that's wrong, but not your right and you're wrong. That behavior does not match that standard. We should not be judging the person. We're judging what the person is doing. 
And there's a very definite difference between those two things. If we're judging righteously, if we're judging in the manner of God, we're using his standard, and then we're not judging the person. We're extending grace to the sinner, forgiveness, but we're recognizing, hey, that action is not right. And then try to be nice about it. And then he continued with a warning against false teachers. It says, the fruit that the tree produces shows the quality of the root. And that's kind of a short summary of the parts of the Sermon on the Mount that we focused on. Now, don't see this sermon as a single event. This teaching would have been repeated over and over and over again at many different locations because there was no mass media. If Christ wanted this message of the Sermon on the Mount to go to everyone in Israel, and he did, he would have to repeat himself many times across that second year. And I believe that's most of what he did from a preaching and teaching perspective on that second year. Destroy the approach of the Pharisees. Show the people a different way. Now, does it contain all of the teaching? No, because there's not a lot of mention of Christ's sacrifice there in year two. But God is wise enough to know that if he brings in certain details in year two, especially at the beginning, he's going to lose his audience. He's got to move them down a path. Remember, they're over here. They're over here at Judaism. I can get saved by works. I'm good enough for God. And he's got to move Israel through a path from there to that won't work, but God has an alternative. Eventually arriving at God has done it all. Salvation by faith. But that's not a, an easy gulf to, 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 that's not an easy gap to cross. When uh, we evangelize people using uh, Brother Lester's uh, adoption of, uh, was it Brother Ford who first wrote the book? Okay, thank you. It's five or six lessons? Yeah. So, we don't try to do it in one lesson in the modern days. Jesus didn't try to do it in one lesson either. He's going to give the time, time for these ideas to sink in. It takes time to go from the Pharisees are right to the Pharisees are wrong. And he's got, he, the, God's intention is to move the collective of the entire nation from there to there. And it's a long way. So the focus in year two is maybe to get them over to here. God bless you, brother. But again, without mass media, without newspapers, without books or literacy, he's got to give that message orally. He's got to do it a lot of times. So by the end of that year, the, the, uh, the disciples knew that message by heart because <laughs> they'd heard it a lot. And as many prophets before him, he was critical of the people's religion. In the Old Testament, the problem was idolatry. Following other gods instead of Jehovah. Now, the Babylonian exile managed to burn idolatry out of the Jewish consciousness. 
You don't see any evidence of the Jews as a nation worshiping idols during the New Testament. They found a new idol. They were worshiping themselves. Self-righteousness over godliness. Now then, as we get on to lesson 144, we see Jesus showing his power and authority. Now he's doing that in parallel with the spreading of the message. And we note that only the greatest historic prophets, Elijah and Elisha, could raise the dead. And it was a drawn-out process with a lot of prayer and a lot of supplication to God. Jesus, on the other hand, would raise the dead with a word from a distance. Talking to the body, remotely curing the sick, or by simply being touched by a sickie. Healing, healing, healing. All these miracles show that Jesus was not just another prophet. And they display a small corner of his true divine omnipotence. Because he doesn't have to ask God for the power to do something. That power is intrinsic. It's contained. He has the authority. He has the power to just make it happen. And while healing and raising the dead, Jesus was also casting out demons. Well, you don't see that in the Old Testament. That's a new thing in the Jewish experience. And after exercising such a demon, he's accused of being a Satanist by the jealous Jews and Pharisees. He demonstrates pretty quickly and easily that this is illogical. Demons don't heal. And if Satan is divided against himself, he cannot stand. And he seems to be standing just fine. Jesus also divides people by their response to him. A divide that's still true today. Very few people who can go, meh, about Jesus. You love him or you hate him. And he warns the Pharisees that they can badmouth him all they want. But knowingly denying God's work carries some pretty stiff penalties. You better watch out for that there minefield. And he continues calling the Pharisees vipers, which is, of course, a snake, but it's a particularly vicious snake. When you read vipers, think cottonmouths, which I think are about the meanest snakes you can run into in North America. Rattlesnakes will let you know. You're getting close. Don't tread on me. Water moccasins will go out of their way to find you to bite you. Vipers calls himself righteous and evil. And they respond, of course, with, a, with a, requesting a sign. You show authority in condemning us. Show us a sign that you're who you are. Dude, I just exercised a demon. I mean, seriously? He knows there's no sign he can give them that they will accept. So he offers the sign of Jonah. First time you see a reference to Jesus' death. Now, it's pretty elliptical. It's cloaked in analogy. And unless you're paying a great deal of attention, <coughs> you're going to miss it. And he also tells them that Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba would condemn their unbelief. Nineveh, because Jonah went after spending some time in a fish tank, and they 
responded to a man who brought them no signs other than a palpable reek. And the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the known earth to visit Solomon. And one wiser than Solomon was there, and they will not listen. Moving on to lesson 146, we see Jesus in the face of opposition and stubborn unbelief. Somewhere in the middle to the end of year two, change his teaching style. And he now cloaks the more advanced teaching within moral analogies, that is to say, parable. And the Greek word parable just means set alongside. The idea that there's another idea traveling with the story. And it's a great term for what is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And some of Jesus' parables, he explains on the spot. Others, we have to look in ourselves, into ourselves. And then, obviously, we are cautioned against misinterpretation. Uh, if it's an analogy, you can always go the wrong way in your interpretation. So you need to follow principles of hermeneutics, in this case, here a little, there a little. It has to synchronize with the rest of the Bible. Uh, otherwise, you're going to wander off into uh, strange places. But his basic messages are still in the clear. You can't be self-righteous. God has a way for you, and the Pharisees are dead wrong. Deeper messages for the already saved are going to require a little bit of effort, perhaps guidance, to decode. Why do this? Well, first of all, why hand the Pharisees ammunition? They're just looking to be critical. So he's not going to reveal all the details to them. And then that information, you don't need to be saved. He needs it. He's a pastor. But a guy on the street just needs the simple truth of the gospel. And then in, we also saw the parable of the sower, which is one of the ones explained by Christ. And it makes it very clear that our job is to broadcast the gospel and leave the details of salvation to God. The four types of ground show that the listener's response is outside of the sower's control. He is broadcasting, scattering widely the grain, the gospel. God then controls the ballistics of the seed, where the seed lands, and what the ground does with the seed. Similarly, the parable of the farmer given right after this in Mark, the farmer has no idea how the crop grows. He's not an expert biochemist. He's not an agronomist. He knows if he puts the seed in the ground, stuff will come up. That's all he has to know. And then he's ready for the harvest. Good analogy. Then in 147, we see Jesus demonstrating his authority over nature. And after being challenged by the Pharisees, as noted in the previous lesson, Jesus instructed his disciples to row to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee. I got to work on my editing. He falls asleep in the boat while the storm attacks them. Make no mistake, this was no accidental storm. Yeah. 
the sovereign God said, hey, go get those guys, would you? And the, the disciples apparently do everything they can to save the ship before they wake Jesus. So by the time they wake him, they're in a state of borderline panic. And they know he can save them. But the way he saves them shocks them. Because he doesn't save them from the storm. He removes the storm. Be still. And it goes from a force-five gale to nothing. Can you imagine a hurricane... I'm being, I'm exaggerating because this probably wasn't a hurricane. But you can imagine a major thunderstorm. And I've been chased by some great ones back, back at Air Products. Bicycling as fast as I can across the plant as the, as the rain is following me. I lost that race. The rain caught me. I had to stop bicycling because bicycling in the rain is other than brilliant. But that wall of water I'm watching coming. Imagine my astonishment if it just disappeared. You know, I remember a thunderstorm with my girls. We were in the, the old Dairy Queen over here on 18th. And the thunderstorm is right over us. And it's dropping bolts in the parking lot across the street. Um, pretty close. And eventually it wandered off. But we sheltered in there for about half an hour. Just imagine, in the middle of that storm, it stops. Goes from thunderstorm to clear skies. These guys knew the weather in the Sea of Galilee. That didn't happen. Ever. Unless God steps in and says, go hit the reset button now. I'd rather have a sunny day. But their response of the disciples, everything they've seen up to this point, their selection at the beginning of the year, they're following Jesus before that. The miracles they've seen, this is taking it to a new level. Who is this man? is their question. Who is this man we're following? They're a little scared of him. But we're not done. At the end of their journey over in Decapolis, Christ shows his power over demons. A man possessed by multiple demons is freed from their power by a command from the Lord. And those demons beg to to have leave to go into a herd of swine, which they then trample into the uh, Sea of Galilee, a thousand or more. The secular Jews living there don't want anything to do with Christ. Clearly, he's disruptive to the pork industry. Get him out of here. But his disciples maybe begin to understand a little bit more. It's another data point. Hey, wait, who is this guy? And then, with that, preparation and that mindset Jesus sends out his 12 apostles in that role for the first time they're sent in pairs which is consistent with Jewish law but they're also sent in pairs for the shared strength and the encouragement now just to be clear the Bible doesn't tell us why he sent them in pairs but I think we can make some reasonable logical assessments and they're instructed during their apostolic journey to rely entirely upon the provision of God, taking nothing with them, staying where they're sent and being content there, healing the sick 
casting out demons. They were one sent forth with special credentials. They were apostles right here. They're sharing that Christ has come. And they're given the authority to symbolically reject those that reject the message, brushing the dust off of their shoes, taking nothing of that village with them. And they were indwelt by the Spirit and totally reliant upon God. A prophet could not have done that. Elijah could not have sent his disciples out and given them power. This is a new thing. We don't talk about this much, but that was something that had never been done. Much like casting out demons, this is a new level of power, a new level of authority that Jesus demonstrates, not to the crowds, but just to his disciples. They're the only ones who see that. He showed that in sending them with power, he was divine. And I don't think it's coincidence that this happened right here. Because in this time, however many weeks it was, they had to depend upon God and they would have had to grow in their faith. This is more training for what's going to happen at the end of this year. And then last week, us in 149, we saw Christ miraculously multiplying one serving into 20,000 servings. And the disciples were tasked with serving the meal. And I think I showed mathematically, there wasn't time for the disciples to keep going back and forth to a, to a pile that Jesus was miraculously multiplying. He had to give them a portion, and as they're carrying it, it would have continued to multiply. That's a very personal demonstration of the power of Christ. It's happening right here. And Jesus intentionally divides the crowd so its size could be easily estimated. The leftovers were a subtle reminder of God's provision for his people. And then Jesus sends his disciples home via a boat, same way they'd come out. And while they're not crossing the length of the Sea of Galilee, they're just cutting a cord across it. Once again, God whistles up a storm, sends it out after the disciples. That sounds kind of familiar. It's a repeat of what we saw several lessons ago. <clears throat> and while the Bible doesn't tell us that they were sinking, they weren't getting anywhere. The storm was winning. No matter how hard they rode, the storm was blowing them backwards. And Jesus walks on the water to join them. And I think most of the times that we talk about Jesus walking on the water, we focus on Jesus walking on the water, and it's a wonderful thing. Let's move past that for a moment. Because what I think is important here, Jesus walks on the water, interacts with Peter, gets into the boat. And the moment he gets into the boat, the wind ceases. And the waves subside. And we're back in the same scenario we saw several months earlier. But something has changed. The last storm, the disciples said, who is this man we're following? This storm, 
After their weeks serving as apostles, relying solely on God, seeing the power they were given by Jesus, seeing up close and personal the feeding of the five, excuse me, the 5,000, their reaction is different. They know now who Jesus is. They worship him as the divine son of God. That's an important moment of personal growth there. And it happened because of their being sent out as apostles, because of the feeding of 5,000, which Jesus essentially shoved up their noses. They were right there. You can only ignore so much divinity. But why was this important? Because the very next day, when they get to Capernaum, the authority figures that had wanted to take Jesus and make him a king show up at Capernaum, where Jesus and his disciples are. And after opening with, how'd you get here? They want more miracles. They want more bread. Jesus takes this opportunity to reveal more about his ministry. He talks for the first time about his sacrifice. He talks about his purpose in coming to the earth, and that it is to die. Everything changed. And many of Christ's disciples who had been following him because, frankly, they were following the Messiah they expected. They had hitched their wagons to the man who was going to drag them to the top. And every society has these people. And now he's talking about sacrificing himself. You know what, guys? We need to find us a new Messiah. This guy's wacky. And a lot of his disciples, a lot of his followers quit following him. And Jesus turns to the twelve. And he says, will you leave me also? They say, no. You've got the words of life. You're the son of God. I think that really is a key point as we end year two. Because they've turned from casual followers to intensive followers to dedicated 100% followers. Nothing is going to discourage them long-term. There's some discouragements coming. But as Jesus transitions his message from year two, the Pharisees are wrong, there is a way, to year three, I am the way. It's a big change. And a lot of the disciples say, enough of you. But the apostles who have been specifically prepared by God for this moment say, works for us. What's next, boss? And again, I see the second year of Christ's ministry as the year of growth for his apostles. The miracles they saw, the opposition they faced, the gospel they spread all served to demonstrate and reinforce the reality that the Son of God had come 
and they were privileged to work with and for him. I have just one question for you guys. How can you see God training and growing you for the work he has for you? He's still in that business. Anybody want to jump in? This is a tough one, a little personal. 